Assalamu alaikum. This is another episode of Network Reorient. Today we have with us Samaya Afsal and Claudia Radivan, who will be speaking on the topic of prevent and schools. The Prevent strategy first spawned in 2003, but following the 7-7 London bombings, in 2007 it was rolled out by the UK government with the broad and somewhat vague objective of stopping people becoming terrorists or supporting terrorism, and found itself expanding beyond the criminal to focusing on the pre-criminal, identifying those potentially vulnerable to falling prey to being radicalised and doing what it says on the tin, preventing this from happening. The Home Office has boasted of the programme's success, claiming to have thwarted terror and rescued thousands of people from the predatory grips of extremism. And yet there has been a great deal of concern as to how the strategy has been enacted. Academics, human rights groups, students, teachers and members of the Muslim community and beyond have raised concerns over the PREVENT strategy arguing that it unfairly and indiscriminately criminalises, stigmatises and pathologises the Muslim community. This in turn has now led to the government recently appointing Lord Carlyle to lead an independent review of PREVENT, the results of which should be delivered to Parliament by August 2020. So here with me today to discuss the PREVENT strategy and particularly how it's enacted in schools are Claudia Radivan and Smeya Afsal. So welcome to you two. Um, I'd like to begin the episode by just asking each of you to briefly introduce yourselves and to talk um, a little bit about how your work involves scrutinising the prevent strategy in general. So if I could come to you first, Claudia. Um, thank you very much. Um, my PhD has largely looked at the uh, prevent strategy, but more broadly at de-radicalisation in the UK as a whole, um, with particular emphasis on how prevent has been used as an extension of past forms of colonial governmentality so the idea of managing bodies managing the citizenry and how these policies of management are inherently islamophobic and far from de-radicalizing groups prevent um, can actually potentially be a radicalizer uh, particularly looking at the methods of pre-crime and so on that you mentioned and um, yeah, essentially just how this policy, it's not doing what it's set out to do, it's doing quite the opposite. Mm. And um, it also has a very detrimental effect on communities, uh, as you pointed out, stigmatising them, continuing to encourage people to racialise Muslims, which um, in turn doesn't just affect Muslim groups, it affects other BME communities, particularly Sikhs, Hindus and so on. Uh, yeah, from a sort of, from a specifically academic approach, um, also looking at some of these statistical evidence from freedom of information reports and so on. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Samaya? Yep, so I work for the Muslim Council of Britain. I um, am currently running a national listening exercise with Muslim communities all over the UK on their concerns uh, and, and, and views on what should change around the national counterterrorism debate. Um, and obviously prevent is a very, very big part of that. Um, because it's one of the uh, the strands that people have uh, the, the the biggest connection to or at least have heard of have heard of it so that's uh, that's my interaction um, with the policy at, at the moment um, but when I was a student I co-founded the national student campaign against uh, the prevent strategy being rolled out 
within um, within universities and public sector bodies in 2015, um, which was called Students Not Suspects. So we had a, um, a, a strategy to, to come together with lots of different uh, groups, so like teaching unions, for example, um, and we looked at the application of the, of the policy and how it would impact um, freedom of speech, mm-hmm. uh, freedom of, of association, um, and in general, uh, the ability of Muslim students to, uh, to, 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 to be um, uh, at universities, uh, at further education colleges, um, and exist mm-hmm. purely and simply. Um, so, you know, whether they were in the Islamic society, whether they were in their lectures, whether they were in their accommodations, uh, what were the kinds of challenges that this this policy would bring? So that's what we campaigned against. Um, and, and then fo- following on from that, we kind of realized that there were um, a number of uh, problems within within the policy itself and, and, and how it would uh, impact uh, Muslims more generally. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit more about the, the national listening exercise that you've been doing? I know you're still in the process mm-hmm. of um collating all the information you've got but any sort of first first thoughts on on what you found so far yeah so there are there are a lot of um different ways in which muslims engage with the topic at hand um so counterterrorism is um i, I think it can be viewed as sometimes sometimes an inherently stigmatizing topic mm. in, in 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 and of itself you know people uh, will criticize and um, and, and actually challenge why do Muslims need to run uh, a listening exercise on this, this topic in, in, in the first place. Uh, terrorism or, or counter-terrorism is by no means uh, you know, solely a Muslim problem or, um, uh, a, a, or a solution that Muslims have to come up with themselves. Right. Um, you know, this is the job, the job of the government. Um, but what we w- wanted to do was try and figure out a way to, first of all, get past the, the impasse that seems to have uh, been created over the last uh, four or five years so that there's, there's polarization there's pro- pro-prevent anti-prevent um, and there's a there's a constant kind of playing out of, of those uh, dynamics within national media um, within po- within policy and, and think tanks and and, and how um, the government decides to deal with this problem and 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 this kind of leaves um, a lot of Muslims um, everyday Muslims feeling as though um, you know if they get involved in the in the debate they will be stigmatized um, if they don't um, they will have no recourse to, to try and change things. So what we tried to do was get beyond that um, and, and really encourage Muslims to, to, to get involved. Um, I think there's the, what, what that has shown is, 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 the, is the way that this, this debate often um, happens, you know, very um, uh, behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. People don't necessarily want to, to openly share their opinion. Um, and also sometimes I think people just completely want to... Um, remove themselves from the from the conversation mm-hmm. um so that there's, there's been um, a lot of different responses sure um claudia you mentioned something about prevent being uh you know not doing what it's supposed to do on the tin um what it says on the tin uh, and you talked about it being a means of actually radicalizing muslims doing the opposite of what, what it intended could you talk a little bit more about that well if we look if we look historically at um other sort of pre-crime policies so one of the most obvious ones that comes to mind is stop and search Mm -hmm. um stop and search had the effect of essentially mobilizing the youth to be more anti-police than they they would have previously been and obviously stop and search has been applied not just for things like drugs or knife crime but also in terms of um counter-terror legislation Mm. and far from sort of making people feel safer making people feel like something's being done it had the effect of um, making people feel like they were being profiled, like they were being targeted on the basis of race or appearance. 
um, which, you know, evidence has come to light subsequently of sort of the systematic racism in the police to show that this is in mm. fact correct. Statistics have shown that the people that have been stopped and searched are disproportionately from minorities rather than this sort of broad approach that this is a policy we're applying to everybody. Um, also, sort of looking at the ways that it, it has been a radicalising force. When, when we look at the kind of people that are targeted for PREVENT, it's disproportionately Muslim males between the ages of 18 and 35 who are considered the mm -hmm. most risky group. And it has this, um, the, the phrase is self-fulfilling prophecy. If you are constantly targeting a particular group, making them feel like they are a problem, making them feel like, um, you know, this issue that we're facing now, this is, you know, the problem of your particular community. You have the end result that you are going to mobilise people to, towards the fringes. That's how mm -hmm. any kind of extremism, radicalisation works. The more that you target this particular group, you are going to push them to the fringes where they feel like they can express themselves safely or, or in any way. For example, when you have people being referred through Prevent for wearing Free Palestine um, bracelets, mm. far from encouraging people to be more moderate, it's going to have the opposite effect if you keep stamping on particular groups. You're just going to push them into a different arena rather than making them feel more included. So in that sense, it has this sort of the opposite of its intended effect. Mm. If in fact we are buying into the idea that, you know, the whole intention of Prevent is to be, you know, de-radicalising to uh, stop this problem. And it isn't a policy of management, which I personally mm. think it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. OK, so obviously we've, we've looked at um, sort of prevent more broadly within within the work that you're doing um, and criticisms abound about the about the strategy and how it's being taken up and 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 the future directions in in which it seems to currently be be going in um, and Claudia you've talked about the the specific age range of, of young Muslim men that seem to be targeted by the by the strategy um, prevent being a, a state uh, a, a, a state tool um, it therefore has a long reach it has the the long reach of the the state behind it um, one of the institutions within which it operates quite um, well yeah nefariously for want of a better <laughs> want of a better word is is within schools um, there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding around how it operates um, there doesn't seem to be um, much transparency, um, certainly from the perspective of many, many parents who are often caught blindsided by it. Um, so I think that it's quite important that there be some discussion around that um, to just uh, allow for, 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 for clarity on this. So for today, I really wanted to focus on how PREVENT operates in schools, um, be that primary, secondary um, or beyond. Uh, and what are the key issues that critics have identified um, around the specific application of PREVENT within schools? Smeya, if I could come to you first. Yeah, um, so I think that for schools, um, there has been a lot more focus on um, on wrapping up PREVENT within safeguarding. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this is something that really no one can argue with, you know, if if, if if any, uh, if you want any policy to be successful, you need to kind of frame a problem and then say that this is the solution, and 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 the protection of of children is something that's that's clearly very very important to everyone. 
Um, so it's sometimes difficult to even start to have that conversation about why is there preventing schools. Um, and then secondly, I think also then um, the kinds of um, conversations that um, a teacher that is trained by prevent or um, or is, is under the obligation to, to report you know, young children who may be kind of uh, showing behaviours that they think are, um, you know, fr- from from a spectrum of like subversive behaviours to, you know, mm-hmm. what they think is, is considered extreme, um, to, you know, to, to go ahead and, and, and report them. There's, there's, a, there's a very kind of, um, uh, th- there's a very hostile climate in which that, that's occurring. So there, there is, I think, as has been demonstrated by like polls and, and stats um, across the board, um, incredible levels of Islamophobia in, in, across mm-hmm. society um, and, and nowhere do you see that that more than within um, uh, you know the, the state policies and, and, and institutions so I think that there's um, there's a huge focus a hyper focus on Muslim children and Muslim parents their involvement as governors their involvement within the education of, uh, of, of their children um, and their and also then um, their um, I guess the, the 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 techniques or the other ways in which they they, they raise their children. So the, this kind of bringing in a prevent uh, to take over the discussions around anti racism, anti extremism, mm. all of these kinds of um, uh, discussions and, and workshops that may well have happened happened before. Um, that kind of uh, it, it comes in with with that lens. Um, this idea that there is um, something inherently uh, different about Muslim children and and the way that they um, the language that they use, the mm. kinds of um, uh, traditions or uh things that they are used to that there is something different and um and they are to be treated differently if they make mm. mistakes or mm-hmm. if they say stupid things mm. um so i think that, there, that there's that which is i think it's 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 really important to kind of get a grasp of that um when you when when you're looking at how many children are, are referred and how many children eventually after being referred um actually go through the the, the channel process mm. Do we have an idea of um, sort of how many children are being referred through Prevent? What's the process? So, and, and what are the processes that they go through? Um, I have I haven't sort of got the statistics for this year. But when I first started looking at this around twenty fifteen, it was again the majority of those referred by a long stretch are Muslims, usually males, um, and it's the age range sort of obviously quite a lot in school, but also eighteen to thirty five. But uh, within that percentage of people referred, again, it's an overwhelming majority of cases that are subsequently dismissed. Mm. So having been referred and having gone through the first stage of the process, it's then found that actually this was unnecessary. Mm. But it's a bit like when people are falsely accused of things like sexual assault, just because you said, oh, we've dismissed this now. The, um, the stigma attached to the, these offences doesn't just disappear now that right. you've said it's dismissed. That particularly if you think in schools. Mm. Um, I mean, people often often say, you know, children can be the cruelest. The mm. stigma attached with those accusations don't just disappear. Mm. That'll stick with the child. And there's been examples uh, in the press of kids who have been... Uh, one particular example, actually, a child was talking about eco-warriors in a French class and um, used the French word for eco-terrorism. Mm. And because he'd used the word terrorism in French... Um, he was referred and having been a very gifted student in languages he's now subsequently dropped them Mm. and won't pursue them and whilst whilst this seems like um, something quite isolated um, one of the key problems with preventing schools 
is it encourages this form of self-regulation. Right. So as much as um, we don't want people to start shutting down and not discussing things where they have to be discussed, it's going to create the atmosphere of a lack of trust in an environment where kids are supposed to be able to trust those around them, they're supposed to be in school to develop, not to be um, assessed for their potential as um, you know, the next Osama bin Laden. Mm. And you have, you have a problem whereby um, teachers, the, tra the training available isn't, isn't particularly clear, it's quite vague. I did one of the training courses online that was one of the top recommended ones and it took me 14 minutes to do. Right. You cannot possibly train somebody through a PowerPoint presentation in 14 minutes to recognise what makes a radical and what doesn't. Mm. Uh, the training was very poor, it, it wasn't very consistent, and it played very strongly into these racist tropes mm. about, you know, uh, this Eurocentric idea that because Muslims are different, they, you know, they are problematic. Um, and the other problem, um, at the point, uh, more recently with Prevent 2, as it's called, where it became less of a suggested thing to implicate. It's now incumbent. It's, mm. you know, it has to happen. Right. As if teachers aren't under such an incredible amount of pressure as it is with, mm. you know, constant decreases in funding, um, increased pressure, too many kids in classes. They're already under immense pressure and you're now going to pluralise policing so that they're responsible for that as well. Mm. Right. This is not their job and they are not being trained adequately to carry it out. So all you're going to have is this constant marginalisation of children. You're encouraging other children to see these kids as different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've got these ridiculous examples of three-year-olds being referred because yeah. somebody misheard them say terrorist house and decided mm. that that meant they live in a terrorist house. Mm -hmm. As if a three-year-old understands what that is. Mm -hmm. Or as if anyone would trust a three-year-old with that mm -hmm. information, right. more to the point. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's become, if it wasn't so serious, if it wasn't, very detrimental in how it affects mm. people it'd be laughable mm -hmm. yeah i think the figure is is um up to 95 percent of um of all cases that that are reported are not um eventually referred to channel i think there's a couple of different reasons for that though you obviously have to have um it's an optional uh it's well it's considered an, an optional pr procedure um that there are uh people who um you know upon further kind of either research or conversation uh they realize that the obviously the child is is not the problem that the, the family is or there's some other kind of influence so there are kind of lots of ways in which that that body of like 95 percent of cases is dismissed but i think that that's probably one of the most dangerous parts because there's there there are kids who are who are having to go through the stigmatizing process or kind of had their knuckles wrapped and said you, you've you've said something wrong or you've done something wrong or you think the way you think is wrong um and that's going to impact you know how how they then understand themselves their identity um and their place wh whether in their school or within society at large so i think that that's really important to note as well that um we kind of focus very very heavily on 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 the, the cases that are referred and whether they merit referral but actually the ones that are actually dismissed beforehand there's probably a huge amount of work to, to be done there as well mm. i mean it's the irony isn't it that prevent the prevent strategy is set up as um, you know, safeguarding children, as as you said, Samaya, that that often shuts down the opportunity for any debate because who wants to debate um, a policy that's put in place to safeguard children? Mm -hmm. But when that very same policy is enacting um, a trauma upon children who are then going to grow up to be adults who have you know suffered that trauma mm -hmm. and continue to, as Claudia said, suffer from the stigma attached to that trauma, then it's paramount that that strategy is 
scrutinized and criticized mm-hmm. and open for debate um and on that i think it's i, I think it'd be I, I know claudia you've given some examples but um earlier in the year um the guardian published an article on on this exact um issue the alienation of muslim school children as a result of the strategy being enforced by poorly trained teachers who let's not forget are also human beings affected mm-hmm. by the uh, you know the current islamophobic climate in which we are living um so, so Samaya, you know you you work with muslim council of britain i was interested to know if there are any sort of uh, cases that you've come across of of how children have been affected and how families have been affected by mm-hmm. by prevent in in school um so i i i i, I can't share details sure. um but there this is one of the uh major concerns that we've had from a lot of parents um we've had a lot of kind of um uh, there's been a huge amount of media attention at, at the moment on on muslim parents um and and their choices in with regards to their children's education um i think there's been in 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 the context of that one one of the reasons why for example the birmingham um uh, lgbt education mm-hmm. um uh, row that, that that's been going on um has been uh, taken on so strongly by by muslim mm-hmm. parents um, and this is not to kind of um, express an opinion for for or against, but just to say that you know the uh, the way the uh, segment was 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 packaged as uh, an uh, an opportunity for the school to deliver un- under its uh, obligations under prevent mm. um, was was it was a big problem, um, right. and I think that that again that footing of kind of where Muslim young Muslim children or uh, or Muslim parents are in society, um, I think that 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 continuous questioning is something that's um uh really impacting people's um kind of their understanding of themselves their understanding of um what they what kind of life they can have mm. in, in this country as well so you do have kind of debates and discussions on you know what next you know mm. it's you know what what kinds of battles are we going to have to fight next sure I think it's really shocking for a lot of sort of second generation Muslims who who went who were born here who mm. went through the educational system who are very much at home here who are now parents themselves and seeing that their children are no less marginalized or exceptionalized yeah. um otherized than than they were the, yeah. the and in fact in so many ways it feels worse because it feels like it's coming you know, it's institutionalized yeah. now. Before it was just playground bullies, but yeah. now it feels like when you have a strategy that is in place that is training teachers to act as, you know, some sort of proxy for government surveillance of children, mm. it's really alarming for for parents. Mm. I think what I found certainly talking to you know just amongst my own social group of of Muslim parents, um, we're often caught unawares by it. You know, um, there doesn't necessarily seem to be um, a lot of awareness as to how this, how how the policy is is um, how it operates within schools, and and so when a complaint comes home about a child and some misdemeanor that's happened at school, you know, you're not really sure. Okay, is my child being scrutinized extra because they're be because of of their um, Muslim heritage religion or 
you know, there's a sort of gaslighting, I think, that goes um, as well. We second guess ourselves. Um, and so what, I, what I'd like to wrap up today with is how can parents be more aware of how their school engages with PREVENT and what are practical steps that concerned parents and teachers can take? I think, I think that there has to be some sort of balance so you can't end up in a situation where parents are telling their children you know you mustn't talk to any teachers you mustn't um, engage with them at all because you, again you end up falling into this trap of self-regulation where you've got a whole community and their children who are terrified to speak on anything and mm -hmm. this is where it's become I think most detrimental and it's not just in schools it stretches to academia to postgraduate academia um, where you have people that don't want to engage in debate and don't want to interact in the academic process at any level because they are terrified that what they say will be misconstrued or will be viewed through a particular lens and they'll end up being referred through this policy and certainly the risk for younger children and the fear for parents is that social services become involved if you're deemed to be raising a radical child your child mm. can be taken off you and um, we've seen some of these ridiculous examples. It really doesn't take much to be referred. And I think that there has to be a balance whereby um, kids understand and parents are educating their children, parents are educating themselves to understand that there are these risks and that they need to understand um, how, the, how the process works and ultimately how to avoid be becoming embroiled in it mm -hmm. um, without ending up in this um, sort of uh, business of being secretive and self-regulating to not talk at all mm. and I think that there has to be that fine balance struck um, in terms of how to do it um, you know, we discussed among ourselves a sort of a more informal approach rather than going to specific bodies for advice and so on I don't know if you want to mm. elaborate on that tonight. yeah um, so I think this uh, entire debate has has opened up kind of more kind of small micro debates around um, what are some of the challenges that, that, that children are facing within schools anyway? Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many different things that, that, that the pressures that, that, that kids are under, whether that's through exams and, and the kind of the whole attainment mm -hmm. um, aspect, whether that's, you know, the, um, the sexualization of young girls and pornography within mm -hmm. schools, whether that's um, bullying and, um, and, and racism and all of these other things that, that, that children are facing. I think that there's a real need for parents to be much more open with their children um, and kind of really find out more about what's going on in, within their lives because mm -hmm. I think that sometimes that, that, that disconnect allows there to be you know, sometimes a, um, a, a, a way for, for, for parents to kind of be really separated from, from their, their children's experiences in school. So I think that that's, that's really, really important. But then also those kinds of informal networks between parents, because as you've mentioned, prevent, you know, is a, is a policy, it's an indication, it's a suggestion at the mm -hmm. end of the day um, for, uh, for individual institutions and organisations to adopt and then, and then for them to deliver in the way that they, um, they choose. Um, so that's, that's, kind of based on their own resource and their own capacity some will lump it in with safeguarding mm. um they will try and uh, make it uh, some will make it you know different some it's it's different in every, in every school so i think that it's it's up to the it's up to parents and it's up to people who are interested in this to really find out exactly how it operates um you know you nine times out of 10 i would say that they they would they would be open um and then really find out about how you can uh, try and change that 
how, like how can you resist some of the the ways in which um your children are targeted um so i'd say yeah parental networks get involved with schools i know that there's a huge um outcry now uh whenever muslims join anything uh mm. but when i was when i was younger uh, muslim parents were always encouraged to 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 join as governors uh, to mm. really take an active role in, in the education of their children i think that we shouldn't let the climate um uh completely separate us as, as from that so mm. i think yeah really really important know your stuff um, mm. know exactly what's going on in your local context build links with the parents of the you know of the children in in, in your child's school but also um other schools as well in the area as well um and then you can reach out to, to different organizations and um, you can touch base, you can sound off ideas, you know, you can look at what's already been done uh, within the higher education sector um, and, and, and see what works. So I think that there's there's, there's a lot to be done. I think we, we just need to kind of um, f- try and uh, make sure that we know what's going on before we're, we're campaigning on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to push you a little bit more on that yeah. in terms of um, you know, if there are Muslim parents listening to this mm-hmm. and they're thinking, okay, I need to get clued up on this, where do they go? Because if you do a Google search on prevent, yeah, you'll get a definition, dictionary definition of yes. what prevent means. Yeah. Uh, or you'll get, you know, sort of um, government sites on, yeah. on what prevent is about, which I suppose is a starting point. But yeah. for if you want to know how to challenge it, yes. um, or what are the problems, maybe there are parents listening going, well, what's the problem? Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe they, they think that there's no problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that, uh, yeah, like I said, you know your own context better than anyone. So um, if you're, if, if you think that there, if you think that there's a problem or if you're worried about, um, about your child um, in, a, in, a, in a school where they, they are um, really kind of either aggressively like training all the teachers on, on prevent and, and looking out for, for all of these kind of really minor sometimes, um, uh, you know, incidents, you know, where a child uses a, a word, um, a child is, is, is bullying or a child is, you know, exhibiting some kind of, I would say like, behaviors that are within the normal realm of what you would find find in hmm. a school so i think that you know any anyone um anyone who feels that, that they're in that situation um find out as much as, as possible and then come you know to your local organizations that, that are there to help so the muslim council of britain is a national organization but you're more than welcome to get in touch and, and, and tell us about what's going on there we have been looking for people to get involved in the listening exercise you know fill in our survey uh send us an email about your experiences so that we can um, you know, when we represent and advocate on a national stage, we are able to really um, fully scrutinize the policy and say mm-hmm. this is the impact that it has at the grassroots. There's no point in a policy being, uh, you know, as um, as di- you know as diverse as 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 it can be, or you know, having gone through you know many many reviews, if it's actually being uh, completely um, uh, counterproductive, you know where it matters Absolutely. then um that, that that's not a policy that's fit for purpose so um if you are um also uh someone who has faced some some of this kind of uh behavior then also you can take part in the uh the national review that that's happening on on, on prevent it may not be perfect it may not be something that um it, it may be led by someone who um has uh intimate kind of connections with, with prevent but um we need to kind of use anything as, as a vehicle to publicize just how damaging it is right. so to, to use that as well so that there are there are lots of different avenues that, that you can take that's brilliant thank you thank you Swaya. thank you claudia thanks this has been another episode of network reorient 
Thank you for tuning in. I have been your host, Sophia Rahman. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.